Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I'm Huzefa, your host, as always. And today we're talking about a very interesting concept, something that I just really became aware of last week when I was at a seminar. And the seminar was hosted by a gentleman named Andrew Miller, who's joining me today on the show. And it was all about project-based learning. And project-based learning, I'm not going to get too much into the details right now about what it is because I'm going to let Andrew tell you about it. But it was really, really fascinating because it's another means, it's another way to deliver information and to teach kids that is extremely, extremely effective. And and moreover, it sounds to be more fun, more engaging, all these really cool pieces uh, that that just make it sound very interesting and fascinating. So I saw that I was in the seminar and I had to have Andrew on the show and he kindly agreed. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Andrew. Andrew, how's it going? It is going very well. So Andrew, how how long have you been working with or teaching about project-based learning? It's been quite some time now. It's kind of, you know, it's funny you ask me that question. It makes me go, oh my gosh, how long has it been? Um, I started actually, you know, my career in education started at a very traditional teaching place. Um, it was kind of the heart of the, the standards-based movement, and I walked into a, kind of a teaching environment that was pretty standardized. You know, we had a lot of scripted lessons, um, and I taught um, in high school, uh, English and social studies predominantly. And um, I, you know, I had, you know, I had done some projects, so to speak, which is a little bit different than project-based learning, but. I started kind of dabbling in it kind of as a, a lone wolf, if you will, in a high school, trying to try it out by myself. But I didn't really feel like that I was very effective at it. And it just so happened that a small school was going to be opening up in the district. And um, it would be 6 through 12, um, a lot of integrated content, STEM. But um, PBL, uh, project-based learning, was going to be a really a main focus for the teaching and learning there. And so I knew that I kind of had to be a part of this. It felt like it kind of matched what, how I wanted teaching to be. And so I was trained actually by a group called the Buck Institute for Education. So if anybody wants to learn more, they've got plenty of resources, sample projects there. Again, that's the Buck Institute for Education. Um, and I was trained by them, and I started doing all kinds of projects, um, projects that were really integrated, some that were shorter, maybe a couple weeks, two to three weeks. Um, and then um, from that work, apparently I did something well because they said, hey, do you want to come hang out with us and talk to teachers you know, about PBL and, and maybe do some trainings with us. And I said, sure, sounds like fun. So I, I did some in the summers. And now I, I, I do this work kind of full-time consulting, if you will, um, on PBL. And I've gone all over uh, the United States, Canada, Mexico, China, Dominican Republic, India, Australia. It's everywhere. It really is. There's great PBL happening across the globe. So I think that just speaks to its effectiveness and its popularity at the same time. Now, when you first began working or being trained in PBL or project-based learning, was there a particular subject matter that you were dealing with or was it across the board? 
Well, specifically, you know, at this school, we did a lot of integration. It almost felt like we were all working on different subjects, but I, I did history, social studies, and um, a technology course. That's where I focused the work. But like I said, we were really um, forced to or called upon to integrate. So I'd be side-by-side -side planning with, you know, my, my math teachers would be right there or my art teachers. So we did all kinds of, you know, levels of integration, some that were smaller, like I said, and some that were just like epic, you know, weeks-long, highly integrated. Got it. So what is project-based learning? Yeah, this is the the seminal question, right? The one that we probably, if you were to walk away for, with one thing, this is the thing. You know, when we think about projects um, and, uh, you know, the traditional methodology in terms of implementing a project in your class, oftentimes what happens is you teach the curriculum and instruction, right? You do your lessons, all good stuff, your labs and your readings and maybe a close reading lesson or maybe some drill and practice, all the good stuff they do, nothing wrong with that. And then because you you know you enjoy you know to engage your kids and your kids enjoy that too in the classroom, you do a project. And that happens usually after teaching a majority of the content. And that lasts, you know, maybe a few days, maybe longer. So those, that's doing projects. Um, it's, not, it's not PBL per se. What we do instead is we leverage on what the project is well. Usually projects are engaging. They're usually an application of the learning, some sort of like performance task. And we leverage that as the engagement for the, for the curriculum, for the instruction, for the standards that you're trying to attack. So you actually give the project to students before teaching the skills and content they need in order to do that. And while that may sound kind of counterintuitive, the whole point is to create inquiry and engagement for the get-go. So kids are asking questions. They're going, well, I don't know how to do that, or I don't understand what this means, or where do we find more information on that? And that's where you jump in. And you use your teaching chops, you know, your, your, your lessons, your awesomeness to get kids to learn the material. But again, it's delivered through the project as opposed to before the project. So I think that's the key thing. It's like if you were to think about it, instead of the project being what we call the dessert at the end, it's the main course of the learning. It is the unit of instruction. Now, I remember you mentioned in the seminar that the idea is to make it right like the meat of the of the course, the projects. But I believe you did mention, though, it doesn't com necessarily completely replace the standard teaching model, but it's it just takes on a larger role. Am I am I getting that correct? That is correct. Like, for example, if students ask a question, it could be a very specific question. Like maybe I did a cell phone project, right? when I integrated with my math teacher and we, it was all about picking the best cell phone plan and that's diff for different families. And so we actually needed to learn about, you know, graphing and linear equations and students were not competent yet in that skill. And so they would ask, you know, well, how do I graph this or how do I, you know, do a cost benefit analysis? And that's when my math teacher colleague was like, well, that's a great question. Let me do some direct instruction on that because you need it. So she was jumping in with that just in time direct instruction that is very quote unquote traditional in the method, you know, and then I'm jumping in, they had a writing assignment. So I said, well, we need to work, learn how to structure the organization. So I'm going to do a quick little mini lecture. We're going to look at a sample um, and talk about that. So traditional, you know, instruction does not go out the window. It's just that it happens inside of the project. All right. Excellent. And now I know you talked about when we were discussing project-based learning, you talked about some statistics, basically showing that how effective PBL is or how, how it really stacks up to more classic forms of education. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a lot of research out there. Um, and I, a lot of the research has happened probably within the last decade. Uh, something I always like to say is that, you know, PBL itself is not new. It's, um, it's been around the block, but I think it's really crystallized with the la in the last years because of its, you know, um, its legitimacy in terms of like the research like people are putting out there. 
Um, I, I, one specific one that I think is important in illustrating it is, you know, AP exams and AP courses. You know, we, we talk about AP exams and those are very much content heavy, right? You've got to know a lot of material and really in a short amount of time, you have a year. And so, um, uh, the Lucas educational research, um, related to edutopia, they, um, paired up and did some work, um, with some research, um, and they're still doing it actually with BIE on P- using PBL to deliver um, instruction uh, to, uh, through AP exams and AP courses. Specifically, they've been focusing right now, I think, on environmental science and AP government. They're going to expand it, I'm sure. But what they found is um, that as students that learned through this method did um, much better on the AP exams, um, about the same when it came to like the multiple choice kind of questions, but when it came to the more like, I guess you would call them critical thinking prompts or application or scenario-based prompts, they outperformed students that were in the maybe the more traditional setting of delivery of the course. So I think that speaks to one thing that, you know, PBL is about content, but it's also about deeper learning, that students are able to retain the knowledge, they're able to use it more effectively in different contexts. Um, there's also a study about PBL in like middle grade mathematics and they found, you know, the same thing, you know, that, that students, one, actually I thought that was interesting. Students had a a better attitude toward learning math, which I think is a huge thing, right? Students are always saying, oh, I'm not good at this or, you know, math is not for me. But in this one, they found like, no, I can do this and I feel better about math. And, and I think another, there's, like I said, there's a lot of research. Um, one that I found is that teacher, um, teacher attitudes towards teaching and learning also increases. There's less teacher burnout, and teachers feel like I'm more excited to teach through this way than through maybe we would call it traditional instruction. So that's really important to me is as far as engendering some sort of level of interest or passion for math, because actually that's pri- that's primarily my focus is I work on kids privately as well as in the classroom setting on mathematics. And I found that I th- that basically it's really having a high level of self-confidence and also a just a belief that you can you can do math and you like it and it's and it's fun and you can get through problems that is really what differentiates what separates people who perform well and people who who struggle it's just this weird negative belief that just really has no basis but we also talk about I've talked about before on the show about how some kids mistakenly believe that they're either a math person or they're not there's sort of this arbitrary bifurcation of two types of people. And I don't think it's true. I mean, that's why I teach math. That's why I work with so many kids, because I don't believe that's the case. And anything that could help them form a stronger set of beliefs about math, I'm for. So that's really interesting. I'd love to try and integrate this eventually, too, with the standardized test prep that I do in some way, because I know, as you mentioned, with the uh, with the AP exams, that's that's quite interesting that it has better results. So for for parents out there listening right now that are saying, okay, well, PBL, this sounds interesting, but my kid's school doesn't necessarily use PBL or, you know, are there any summer programs that use it? Like how could they go out and have their kids exposed to this type of learning? Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned summer programs. Actually, I've actually found that a lot of summer programs, you know, are trying to experiment with this, you know, or have already. So definitely reach out and ask them, you know, how do how are kids learning through projects, you know, and in experiential learning. I think that's, you know, a great first step. You know, you might be surprised. You might ask around, you know, you might ask the teachers if you're a parent, hey, do you know about this PBL thing or have you heard about it or projects? And I, I would actually, you know, maybe hazard a guess that they're experimenting with it or they're not doing the full shebang, if you will, the full main course PBL, but they're 
they're trying out inquiry-based learning, for example, or they're having students have voice and choice. You know, they're they're playing with what are what we call the essential elements or the essential components of PBL. So, you know, that's one thing to do. And, you know, maybe share videos or ideas with teachers, you know, about, you know, kind of as a partner saying, hey, I read about this and I found a great project. Could you do this with my students? I think that more so than not, there are teachers, even if it's not part of your school program specifically, I bet there's a teacher out there who's trying it out. Now, you just mentioned the term inquiry-based learning. Can you just define what that means for everybody? Yeah, sure. When I think of inquiry-based learning, and this is kind of, I guess, my definition based on experience of trainings, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's using questioning to come to understanding. It's giving students an authentic task or problem or challenge to uncover, um, and they're using they're asking great questions and, you know, they're either researching that information or getting that information from the teacher in the experience. So instead of just saying, learn this because you have to, you know, it's more of let's learn this because we're put in a situation that requires us to learn it. That's interesting and engaging. I see. Okay. Now, if we could, could you walk me through a, let, let's pretend we're on a potential uh, PBL project with a class. Can you walk everybody through, like, how does it, you know, what's the format? How does it begin? So on and so forth. Like a well-designed one. Mm-hmm. I always use this one because I think it was one of my more effective ones when I was in the classroom. You know, we always do projects. Some work better than others. And we reflect and learn on that experience. I share this one because I think it went fairly well. Um, so I, I, I actually taught AP um, world history um, at one point and, you know, and also regular, just like, you know, it was sophomore world history, for example. Um, so, it, so in it, um, I always have to do world religions. It's a common outcome. It's tested. It's, it's got to be there. So I knew students need to learn it. So instead of doing the normal, like, okay, let's just like read a bunch of things and watch some videos, I wanted to engage kids because, frankly, the unit was kind of dull. Like, I felt like my delivery was dull and kids were not as excited. So what I thought about was, well, what is a authentic task or challenge or something relevant I could, you know, tie this work into. And it just so happened that, you know, in the, in, you know, the world around us, people are using a lot of stereotypes. They're saying terrible things. You know, some of the kids are saying it too. So I said, well, what if I could do a project around that? Like, what if we learned about religions in order to maybe address stereotypes? So I gave them a driving question, which is an essential component. You might call it an essential question, but it's a question that drives the learning. And I posed that to students and I said, hey, Here's our, our driving question. How do we get rid of myths and stereotypes of world religions? I also paired that project launch with um, a video of a person saying really terrible things about people of Islam. You know, to kind of spark them and go, wow, well, that's really, that's really terrible. Like, why would you say such things? Um, and so I said, well, you know, guys, a lot of this is completely untrue. What is true? What is not true? And so they came up with a lot of questions, right? They're saying, well, yeah, what do, you know, what do people of this faith really believe in? Or, you know, I know this about Christianity, but I don't know this. Or, you know, what is, what is, I've heard that, you know, this is a belief. Is that really true? And so we came up with a lot of questions. It was a big list of questions. And so from that, I looked at that list, and we looked at that list together and figured out, well, what do we need to do together? And some of the things they were going to research, so that was part of it. They would do some individual and some team research together. And then I decided that, well, you know, I'm also going to need to jump in with some instruction because one of their products was going to be a podcast. I was a big fan of podcasts at the time. It's great that we're on a podcast right now. And so they were interested in that method. And I allowed them in their podcast to choose which world religion they wanted to explore. So that's another element of PBL is that there is some element of voice and choice in it, in how they design what they're learning and what they produce, or in this case, what they're investigating. And I jumped in with some direct instruction using, you know, some tools on how to make a podcast, what's an effective organization for it. We had to do some um, writing and some practice speaking and listening. So I showed them some example podcasts. Um, I showed them ways to record. 
In addition, they were also going to need to do an individual op editorial. That was a major assessment piece for me because I was also assessing writing um, and, in this case, um, informational writing um, standards. So I also had my very traditional informational writing kind of lessons, like how to come up with great topic sentences, how to organize your writing, normal, normal stuff. So that's all happening throughout the project, and throughout it, I'm checking for understanding. Are students learning the material? Are they not? I'm going, oh, I need to meet with that small team. They're not quite on point yet. Or it looks like, here's some feedback on your, you know, your thesis statements or all that normal stuff. And they're working and we're learning. It's kind of the cycle of learning and applying, learning and applying throughout. And then <clears throat> at the end of it, there was kind of a, a, a sharing day, an exhibition day, where we set up the room as kind of a list in different listening stations. And we invited in um, parents and community members um, to share that. And I even got some you know, religious experts. Like uh, I had a rabbi come in. I had a priest. I had a member from the local um, Islamic kind of center come in. And so they came in and they listened to the work. They talked with students. So there's also a level of public. That's the other key component is that there's a level of public um, com product or component where students are sharing with the group at large and they're getting – and that is great because students are like, oh, wow, it's not just for the teacher. It's for some real-life people. Isn't that great? And it kind of ups the ante. It makes them a little more uh, committed to excellence um, in that. And so that's kind of the full kind of – that. and that project took, I would say, about two and a half to three weeks wasn't epic, but it sure took some time. But again, I tried to target a unit that I knew one was kind of mediocre in its delivery, just based on me and my teaching, and and two was an important unit. Like it was a really important unit that I knew they needed to walk away knowing one for the AP, but also because it was just a, a meaty what we call a power standard. Um, it was like you know one of those big ones that you have to do, and we all have that. I think that's key to remember is that no matter what we teach, we have those units that are I guess worthy of the time that we spend and and you know we know that we need to make sure stick and i think that's the key for pbl so now during this project this two to three week project were the kids doing the majority of the work in class or was it like about 50 50 between home and school most of the time the work was occurring in class i did um, um assign some traditional homework assignments like for example you know we were we did there was a comma lesson i'm gonna you know let's keep it real comma it's not exciting but I gave them like some drill and practice to take home, not epics, but some small homework assignments. Or if they weren't quite done with their writing, I'd say, well, why don't you take that home and finish up the next paragraph? Or if you need to do more research, you're going to need to do that at home. One of the coolest things that I found, this it had been totally happenstance, which was exciting, is that the students, as they worked in teams, sometimes assigned their own homework, which I thought was pretty telling, and that they were excited to do the work, or, oh, we didn't quite get this done. Here, you go home and do that part, and I'll go home and do this part. So there's not a lot of homework that's project work, but there definitely was homework that either was student-driven or maybe more traditional. So I think that's the key is we want the work to happen inside of the school because, I'll be honest, we've all had the experience where somebody takes something home. Um, now, good thing is that we live in the digital age, so we don't have to worry as much, but let's say they take an actual piece or a, a model home. What if it gets stuck at home and never come back? We don't want that. So that's another reason why we didn't have students take work home too much. There's two elements in in that project that I want to discuss that I think are super important. The first one, and they both, I think, go towards the same point. The first part is what you mentioned is voice and choice, where it allows, I, if I'm understanding this correctly, allows students to redirect their efforts in a certain way based on what you know questions that they may have or particular interests that they have. And then the other part is the that final product or that presentation. And I think those are both really cool because... It gives it gets students 
more involved. And moreover, for the second part where you have to create something or produce something to display or present, I think that especially for kids who may not be as driven by grades, I know some are, some may may not be so much. For those students who may not be typically driven in that way, that's a whole nother now motivator, right? Where they where they have to present something to a public audience or their peers maybe. And that could also be something that might get them in the game and get them interested. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and you know, actually, you know, to be transparent and reflecting back on that, I felt like I gave some level of voice and choice because they got to in their teams choose which religion. But reflecting back, like I thought about, I thought about this after the fact. I said, why was it a podcast? Why did it have to be a podcast? It just so happened that I was nerdy about podcasts at the time. But what if a student wanted to, oh, I don't know, put together a website, right? Or what if a student wanted to, you know, do some sort of public service announcement? You know, I think there's a lot of opportunities there for, for them to grow and for me to grow for voice and choice. And, and maybe I didn't offer too much because I was kind of nervous about offering choice. I think sometimes teachers are. And that at least I offered some. So that's the other thing is when voice and choice is a, a continuum, you know, you, you, as a teacher, you, you have to decide with your students, you know, what is an appropriate level based on that. Like, for example, if you're doing this in the elementary grades, giving too much choice is definitely overwhelming. So you've got to figure out the right spot for that. Like, where is their level of voice and choice? Not like, oh, you can do whatever you want. Um, so I think that's a key thing. And then for the public component, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. Like uh, this, in this case, I had, I invited people into the classroom, but Hey, they can, if it was a website, that's public, right? Like, look, put it out on the web and maybe some people will give you some feedback or I could maybe elicit some friends to, you know, to come in and give some feedback digitally. Oh, I really like this part of your website and you could do this. And this is a really important piece of information. Or maybe we do a major big exhibition night. I know schools already do these, you know, back to school nights or, you know, these learning events where like it's like kind of a big open house. Those are great opportunities for that public component that really, again, you know, like creates that engagement, but also gets students to feel really proud of what they do. That's the other thing I see is that not only are students learning, but they're proud of what they're learning. They look at, look what I do. You know, I produce this and yes, I get great test scores, but look what else I can do. I can do this amazing work. You know, there's a website called, I mean, there's all sorts of online education platforms. There's one in particular that I use called Udemy where I create, uh, because I create a bunch of different math related, standardized test prep related video courses. But you know what would be really cool? This just came to me is that if you had that be a final product, perhaps, and then kids could put their, they could teach, they could literally design a course to teach about whatever concept you're learning about and put it on Udemy. And then you, they have the opportunity to sell it if they want. They, I mean, they could sell, give it away for free or sell it. I don't know. That just occurred to me. That might be a really fun thing. I could even try and implement that in math next year, which would be kind of interesting. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Actually, I, I you know, there's a group, there's a, a Chinese language teacher they were teaching, you know, some content, normal stuff, but their final product, and it's actually on Amazon, is a beginner's guide to Chinese. Like, how authentic is that? Like, really? No, it's on Amazon. Go get it now. Like, th- that's a real thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the, and I do I find too that teaching. I mean, I mean, obviously, I think any teacher probably would attest to this. But when you have to teach material, you end up learning it so thoroughly. And so if you could kind of flip the classroom around and allow a, uh, a student the opportunity to do that, I think it would be a, a great way to really ingrain some concepts, especially uh, math concepts. I think that would be particularly effective, but other concepts, uh, you know, any other subject too. But yeah, that would be, that sounds really, really cool, actually. Yeah, definitely. I think you're absolutely right with that. Um, you know, that whole role thing. Students like to be in roles that matter and being a teacher is a role that matters. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Andrew, this was so informative. Thank you so much. Hopefully for everybody out there that's been listening, you've got a good idea of project-based learning, what it's all about, the cool things that it has to offer. I definitely, the reason why we went to the seminar is because we, we all want to use it to a much greater extent next year. I even saw some great, uh, Andrew shared some really cool resources with me, and I've already got some cool ideas for math uh, project-based learning ideas that I want to try and use next year. So, Andrew, if people want to get in touch with you or check out your work or check out more information about PBL, how can they do that? Well, if you're a Twitter nerd like I am, um, you can go on Twitter and find me at uh, Beta Miller, B-E-T-A-M-I-L-L-E-R, um, you can find me there. My website is andrewkmiller.com. Plenty to do that. Plenty to, you know, I, I post all my blogs on there, you know, whether I've written for a certain group or whatever, I put all that stuff there, information's there. And then you can email me there if you want to find, if, if there's something I mentioned in the podcast that you want to learn more about or, hey, what was that website or do you have any videos on this? Go ahead, reach out to me. Happy to help. So awesome. All right, guys, and don't worry, I'm going to put all that information in the show notes. If you want to check out the show notes, go to www.scalarlearning.com. Plenty of information there as well, blog and so on and so forth. If you guys haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast. Also, please write a review if you've listened to a few shows. Would really appreciate the feedback. And remember, this summer, new episodes coming out every day. So make sure to check back regularly. Thanks again for joining. I'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. Learning, give me that skin and learning.